if you got a hell of a lot more vibrant conversation in the hallway before the meetings than in the meetings, you've probably got a problem. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we're joined by an interesting thought leader, all in the name of helping you unleash your leadership potential with their insights, tools, and habits. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, CEO of Results, where we believe there's a hard path and an easier path to building your business. We partner with your leadership team to show you how to dramatically improve your results by perfecting the art of execution to get more of what you want from your business. Have you ever wanted to speak up about something that was really important to you, but for one reason or another, you chose to remain silent? Well, today's episode is gonna help you fix all that. We're joined by courage expert and researcher, Jim Dietert from the University of Virginia. He's gonna share the science about why people tend not to speak up more often than not, and the steps that anybody can take to become more courageous. Not only that, but Jim's research is gonna help you create safe spaces for other people to show up more courageously as well. This is a conversation you absolutely don't wanna miss. I wanna thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University, and they partner with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their online offerings include leadership, digital transformation, project management, artificial intelligence and ethics, digital wellness, and embracing allyship and inclusion. Their core belief is that learning should be fun, engaging, and easily accessible. Their online platform means your employees can literally learn from wherever they are located. PowerEd meets them in their space and at a time that works best for them. Check out PowerEd at powered.ca. Today's episode sponsor is David Applin Group. David Applin Group has been recruiting to fulfill talent demands from Vancouver to Halifax for over 45 years. As one of Canada's best managed companies, David Applin Group provides temporary, contract, permanent, and executive recruiting solutions in a wide variety of industries across Canada. Check them out at applin.com. And don't forget to help us grow the community by sharing the episode links with people in your network that love learning as much as you do. Check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. Now on with the episode. Now my guest today is Jim Dietert from the University of Virginia. So Jim Dietert is the John L. Cauley Professor of Business Administration in the Leadership and Organizational Behavior Area at the University of Virginia's Darden Graduate School of Business Administration and a professor of public policy at the Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. Jim's research focuses on workplace courage, improvement-oriented voice, which is why people speak up or stay silent at work, ethical decision-making and behavior, and other leadership-related topics. This research, as well as his consulting experiences, has been conducted across a variety of global high-technology and service-oriented industries, as well as public sector institutions. His research has won several academic best paper awards and is regularly featured in various online and print outlets. Jim has received numerous awards for his teaching and curriculum development in both MBA and executive MBA settings at Cornell, and the University of Virginia. Jim is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and the author of the book, Choosing Courage, The Everyday Guide to Being Brave at Work, 
published by the Harvard Business Review Press. We're going to give away some copies today, by the way. And Jim received his MA in sociology and his PhD in organizational behavior from Harvard University. He also holds an MBA from the University of Minnesota and a BBA from the University of Wisconsin. Jim Dietert, welcome to Unleashed. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here and hello to everybody with us today. So courage, uh, courage is a topic, I think, Jim, that if, whether we want to admit it or not, probably occupies a lot more brain power than, uh, uh, than we realize if you really stop and take a look. All the moments that pop up in a day where we want to say something, but we don't say something and then how that sits with us and kind of erodes, uh, uh, erodes away at us uh, for a long time afterwards. And I, I was curious about your level of curiosity on this topic. So of all the things that you could have devoted your professional career to researching and becoming a subject matter expert, why did courage become the thing that, that you have spent so much time researching and studying? Yeah, it's a, it's a great place to start. Uh, Jeff, as you and I have discussed, I, uh, when I did my doctoral work, I worked with Amy Edmondson and, and Amy, of course, has um, been the pioneer really in the area of psychological safety. And in my own dissertation, so if we go back 20, more than 20 years at this point, my own first research was on why people speak up or not in organizations. And if we go way back to that, what was, you know, very clear very early on was you basically had two dominant paths. If people thought it was safe to speak up, right, if the climate was psychologically safe, they did. Um, if they thought it was not safe to speak up, if they thought it was dangerous, whatever ways, they didn't. Uh, and those were the two dominant paths. But what was clear e even back then in, in, my f in the very first data I collected was that there was this third set of folks. Uh, it was less frequent, but they were there. There was this third set of folks who said, um, no, it's not safe. And yes, I still speak up or act anyway. And uh, I had coded those folks as courageous uh, and said, wow, this is sort of a different category we need to talk about. And then I if I'm honest, I didn't do anything about that for upwards of a decade. And what led to that sort of finally becoming an action item was I was teaching uh, over that decade, I was teaching leadership courses to MBA and exec MBA and other audiences. And I would end our time together by saying, look, we've covered a lot, lots of tools and topics and techniques, and hopefully we've you know, put a lot more tools in your, in your toolkit. But here's what I honestly believe doesn't matter how many tools you got in the toolkit. Uh, if when the critical moments arrive, arise, you don't use the tools. Um, you won't be good at your job. You won't be a great leader. And using your tools is fundamentally about courage. Uh, and then I would just give a couple examples of that. And what I systematically found is that, you know, we had spent hours, 20, 30, 50 hours together, but on the sort of what do you wish we had spent more time on or what was most powerful this eight minutes on courageous leadership was most powerful. And people said they wanted more. And after hearing that for a few years, what I realized is that, you know, in, in some way or another, most of us realize there's a gap between what my values say I should do or what I want to do and what I actually do. And a lot of time that gap is explained by the fact that I'm afraid and or I like the skills. And so I know that sort of I have some type of courage problem and I'd like to do something about it. And that really became the driver. And that has sustained me 
for over a decade as I really dug into that topic and, and ultimately wrote the book. Yeah, Jim, that resonates. And we see it so often in the, in the work that we do with clients. There's such, a, there's such a significant gap between what people see and what they say is kind of how I refer to it quite often. And what I'm hoping our conversation today is going to do is, is to shine a light on some of the tools that you mentioned and then how we can start to close that gap of using the tools. So uh, you've, uh, you've started that off uh, uh, really succinctly. I also, I wonder if we could do some myth busting, Jim. So like, what are some myths that we have about, about courage and maybe some common misconceptions that, that might trip people up? Yeah. So if we, if we, you know, if we build from this idea about why do all of us at various points or have a wish list of what we think we'd like to do or should do, but don't actually do it. I think there's a couple reasons, a couple prominent reasons. And, and I, I would call this part of the conversation, Jeff, us normalizing the challenge. Yeah. Um, so what I think we have to accept is that um, it's actually not really easy for anybody. Um, there's no magic. So one myth we have to let go of is that there are just some people born to be courageous or born skillfully courageous. It's just not true. Um, and in fact, one of the reasons I hesitate a little bit to talk about, you know, the Gandhi or Martin Luther King or John Lewis or, you know, pick your hero is while those folks are inspiring to us, they actually create distance, right? Because those are literally folks we put on pedestals. Those are literally folks we make statues of. And they, they I think, foster this belief that there's sort of only a few of us who are sort of called to do this or innately capable. And I, I can tell you, having looked at you know, at this point, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of cases, there's no magic personality trait, you know, and, and I would ask listeners, you know, think right now, like, think of the person who the last time you said, wow, that was gutsy, or wow, that was courageous. Think of who that person was. And ask yourself, you know, was that a he or a she or a they? Was that a tall person or a short person? Was it a super extroverted person or a person who's actually often pretty quiet? Um, was it the highest status person in the room or a middle or lower status person in the room? And, and my guess is that if we could quickly compile whatever you're each thinking right now, we'd find it's just all over the map on all of those dimensions and more. There is no magic personality type. There's no magic set of traits. We all know that intuitively. If you do an autopsy of folks, you can't find like, ooh, Jeff had a bigger lump of courage than I did. There is no such thing. Um, so one thing I think, you know, if we want to normalize the challenge and the responsibilities, we got to let go of this idea that it's just for some people. It, it's not true. Um, it's for all of us. I think the other thing we have to let go of sort of associated with that is people will often say, I would like to do X, Y, or Z, Jim, but I'm afraid. And I say to that, um, well, great, the stage is set. Uh, I mean, remember, if courage is basically being willing to take a, a, a risky action that feels worthy, then if you're not the least bit afraid, it's not really the realm of courage. So when people say, you know, I'm afraid, I say, great, the stage is set. And then I also often remind them of what Scott Peck said, uh, which I think is you know, funny and profound. He said, most people think courage is the absence of fear. Actually, no. The absence of fear is some kind of brain damage. Uh, courage is the capacity to go ahead in spite of the fear or the pain. And I think, I think he nailed yeah. that. Uh, you know, if you're afraid, it just means there's something important you want to do, but have some reservations about. So welcome to the world we all inhabit.
that's normal. Yeah. Uh, and I guess, you know, one more myth I think would be, or kind of one thing we got to let go of is if I would ask people to say like, Oh, write down the, the first courageous act that comes to mind. Again, what we tend to write down is the really big act. Um, you know, Oh, the one that's in, you know, in, um, you know, the newspaper or on the news or the one, you know, the story of, oh yeah, Jeff spoke up. Remember Jeff spoke up at the big senior leader meeting and then he didn't work here three weeks later. Ha ha ha. Right. <laughs> That's the story we tell. And um, that also perpetuates the myth that it's only these big acts that risk kind of organizational martyrdom. Uh, and that's just not true. You know, as I think we'll talk more about, we have people every day, right? Your listeners everywhere else who basically say, you know, if I'm honest, I once again avoided that difficult conversation with a peer. Uh, you know, I once again put off that tricky performance evaluation with the person we all like, but isn't really performing well. Um, I once again avoided having that difficult conversation or making that tough decision about a client because I know it's going to be tough. We can all think of things that happen for us pretty regularly that if we're honest, we don't do because we're afraid or we don't know how to do it skillfully. And I think we can start to make a lot of progress if we also let go of this notion that courage at work is only these huge acts. Um, now, the reality is we all face lots of opportunities a lot of the time. Jim, you mentioned uh, you know, Gandhi and Martin Luther King, and I like hearing some of their stories of how oftentimes these big, bold, <clears throat> courageous leaders were in fact, reluctant, and it, it uh, took a lot of uh, it took a lot of time, and it and it, and it took a lot of um, sort of thinking before they became globally known, and and small steps along the way. But there's a question I'm always asking myself: is from where I stand, it seems like history favors the bold, and it seems like courageous, bold, confident leaders have the biggest followings. So, if that's the case, we have enough examples to sort of follow as role models, you think the world would just be filled with these bold, courageous leaders, but it just isn't. Why is that? Well, yeah, I mean, we need about, you know, 20 hours to really unpack the whole psychology of why is it in the first place, place frankly, we follow a lot of these charismatic, bold people, uh, because frankly, where we follow them is off the cliff a lot of the time. Uh, but, but let me grant because you're correct that we do seem quite attracted to these folks and they do have a history of getting ahead, at least for some period of time. So why doesn't that sort of stimulate action in all of us? Um, I, I think in a sense, um, the answer is implied by the question itself, which is uh, if you're out there taking these bold, scary seeming actions, and I can appear to benefit by just sort of, you know, coming along under your wind speed, your wing speed. Why should I stick my neck out? I mean, actually having others that we witness for many of us becomes the excuse or the reason not to be it ourselves. Um, we feel protected. We feel happy uh, that somebody else. I had a, another way to think about this is the difference between inspired by and inspired to. Uh, I just had a doctoral student finish a dissertation on that. And what we explored was the question of like, when you see somebody else do something, you know, that you say like, wow, that was courageous. Uh, one possibility is that by seeing somebody else do something courageous, you will say, 
Now I'll do it too. Um, but another possibility is that you'll see somebody else do something courageous and you'll say like, whew, that's so cool, but I couldn't do that and I won't do that. And that to me is the difference between inspired by, right? So we can be inspired by Martin Luther King or John Lewis or, you know, pick your person. Um, but being inspired by somebody doesn't actually mean you're necessarily inspired to do something. And in fact, sadly, you know, he found it's one study, but he found that actually um, there's, there's a lot more inspired by and a lot less inspired to than we would hope. Um, and, you know, I think if you ask me, well, what's one way to sort of maybe close that gap? It's to actually find people we're inspired by who are more like ourselves. Because it's easy for us to tell ourselves, well, I can't be like, pick your person, Steve Jobs, whatever, right? Um, but if you look to your left and you look to your right and you say you have a coworker who speaks up more than you do, it's harder to tell yourself the story about why you couldn't be more like that person, right? So, so again, stop the hero search because it, it frankly creates an excuse for your own inaction. Yeah, no, that's, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I love that idea of trying to find someone that looks more like us. It, it brings it closer to home and it, it probably means we might even actually know that person. So I, I think that that helps. So Jim, let's, let's start to move into some conversation now, uh, some tangible ideas, tips and tools that uh, we can actually help people evolve into a more courageous, authentic self. And I'm thinking a lot of at the time about workplace scenarios. So I, I think that's where courage pops up uh, predominantly for, um, for, for, for most of us. And of course it happens outside of work as well, but I like uh, keeping the workplace as, as the focus. Now I imagine there's a certain amount of credibility that you have to have with your colleagues or the, the community that you're going to speak up inside. How do you create that credibility? What are, uh, what are the things that have to be in place before your voice is going to be heard? Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll return to the, to the question about like, sort of how do you establish the competence or credibility to be listened to in a second? But, but if I can, let me start by saying yeah. the, really what underlies that is the question of like, what's your purpose? Um, and what I would suggest is sort of thinking about, you know, like a Venn diagram. So you can imagine uh, scenarios where you basically say, I prioritize safety above all else. So therefore I just keep my mouth shut. Right. So that's the got something to say, but don't. You can imagine something on the other side, you know, in that other circle um, that says, I got something to say because living consistent with my values or standing for what I stand for is just crucial to who I am as a person. Consequences be damned. And so these are the folks who, when they got something to say, they let it rip. Uh, most of the time, what you would hope would be the case in in organizational context is that you'd be in the middle. In other words, you'd say, I got something to say. I'd like to say it and be safe. And I'd like to have people possibly listen to me and do something. And, and that's the domain where, you know, your competence matters, the way you go about it matters. But look, there are some cases where you say, I don't care if I'm seen as competent or whatever, because I don't actually intend to create change. I intend to make it known what I stand for and believe in. And that's fine some of the time. Now, why does competence matter? Well, it's actually pretty simple. Imagine you're my boss. And again, I would say to listeners, sort of put this in your own context. You've got an idea about 
something we should stop doing because it's inefficient, it's a waste of money, it's not working well. And instead, we should start doing this other thing. And this other thing is not only going to involve the difficulty of stopping and upsetting some people, but it's also going to take some resources, maybe some new people, some investment. Okay, so I go in, you go in, we pitch to our boss. Hey, boss, Jeff, I think we should, we got to knock this off and here's why and here's what we should do. Implicitly, what Jeff is going to ask himself is actually two things. Um, one, is Jim competent? Like, I heard what he said, we should stop doing X, which is going to cost him trouble, and we start doing Y, which is going to cost us a lot. Um, if I give Jim the resources, if I say, okay, can he pull this off? Because if he can't pull it off, then I'm a colossal fool as the boss to give him resources. So competence matters, right? Anything you say that involves a change ultimately involves the judgment on the other party's part of whether you can pull it off. Um, the other thing that matters is beyond sort of that competence is, is a different judgment, which is warmth. Uh, if I go in and say, hey, Jeff, we should stop doing this and we should start doing why. Uh, the other thing that you're implicitly going to judge, Jeff, is why is he saying this? Is this because uh, he doesn't like that group or because he's uh, because he knows if I give him these resources, his fiefdom will grow larger and his own bonus or pay will go up? You know, why is he doing this? Um, is he doing this actually to show me up to make me look bad, incompetent for the way we've been doing things? So you actually have to work on two things if you want a positive reception. One is they got to believe you're competent. You could do it. But the other thing is they have to believe your your warmth and you have integrity that the reason you're proposing a change is to help not harm them and others. So and if warmth, you fail on yeah. either dimension, you're in trouble. Yeah. So warmth and competence. So when I hear you, when I hear you talk about uh, demonstrating warmth and competence, I think, okay, well, that means I'm going to have to be on a team or in a certain environment for a period of time before I can cross that threshold. Like, is there actually a time horizon necessary or, or can you build both of those things or demonstrate those things Quickly, I'd be curious if there is a, a, a time correlation to this, Jim. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, right, a, a lot of people would say, well, okay, that all sounds fine, but what the hell am I supposed to do if I'm brand new to my organization? Or if this is the first shot I've ever gotten in front of, you know, a skip level boss, three levels up, um, they don't know me. So they don't have any basis for judging warmth and competence. You know, the truth is we actually have a lot of research of what, you know, it's called like thin slice research that actually says people form these judgments about warmth and competence incredibly quickly, like in microseconds, um, they begin to form those judgments. And so what does that mean? Well, let, let's take like the warmth dimension. Uh, it literally matters. Like if you're in a meeting for the first time, um, what's your facial expression? Is it an expression sort of, uh, of welcoming and you know are you smiling do you have sort of an open sort of look to your face do you have sort of a unintentional scowl on your face um are you sitting in a way so are you leaning back are you do you have sort of an open posture that suggests sort of a safety and a trust or are you crossing your arms and leaning forward you know the reality is your body posture suggests sort of an aggression or sort of a safety so there are lots of signals we give off immediately um, I would say to leaders, uh, unintentionally, if you're going into a group of folks, you know, a couple levels below you, um, 
And their average, you know, what they're going to be wearing is at most, let's say, a button-down shirt, but maybe even, you know, some kind of other uniform, much more casual gear. And you show up, you know, with your $18,000 Armani suit or whatever. Um, you are not creating an impression of warmth for those people. So there's so many things that send these thin slice pieces of information about um, just, you, you know, who are you and how are you going to sort of orient toward them. And, and most of us, if we're honest, have to be really conscious about that to try to make the right first impressions. Is there a danger, Jim, that warmth could, uh, if overused, could border on uh, insincerity or, you know, brown nosing to the, the person that you're trying to win over or have that challenging conversation with? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, you know, the, in a lot of ways, right, we could come back to this point of, uh, how do you help the person see that sort of you want to win with them, not at their expense? Or how do you help them see that you care as opposed to wanting to sort of trump them? And the, the truth is, um, in the end, right, yeah, you, may, you maybe get one shot up front when people don't know you to fool them. But the truth is that in the end, like your record speaks for itself. So if I've multiple times pitched something and the first time or two I've convinced you, oh, I care about you all and it's good for us. But in fact, the way I then went about it was it was all about me, me, me. Uh, and then I deflected and blamed everybody. When Well, yeah, by the fourth time I say that, there's no like, there's no false front that's going to matter anymore. Uh, so, you know, if you say, well, how do you convince people that you do care about them, that it's not just, well, when you get your shots, you prove to them that it was about them. Uh, but yeah, let's not pretend that people are stupid. In the end, uh, you know, I forget who said it, but I, I believe strongly in this, this saying, you know, um, I can't hear what you said because your actions speak so loudly. You know, in the end, what, what we do is what's going to get judged. Jim, in your book, you break down courageous acts into, uh, into sort of three components. And so it's kind of like pre, during, and post. So what do you do before the courageous conversation or act to prepare? Uh, what do you do during it? And then what's important following the act? And I, in the time that we have today, I wonder if you could, you can sort of give us uh, some of the essential elements of each three of those areas, a bit of a crash course. So, uh, so we've, uh, we've kind of got the, uh, that, the how-to guide in, in simplistic terms. Yeah. Okay. So, so right. As you allude to there, I mean, there are huge buckets of activities in all of those steps. So let me try to just say something at kind of a high level about each. Let's talk about the before. Um, that's actually really a continuation on this sort of establishing warrant, establishing competence, establishing that people see you as fair, as emotionally capable. Uh, you know, a lot of people say like, well, look, what I really have to do is I have to go into my boss's office and, and convince him or her to do X or pitch Y. I'm just not ready for that yet. In which case I'd say that's fine. But certainly you could be ready to take some of the preliminary steps that would help you get ready. For example, uh, one of the things you can really pay attention to and do is say, well, what does that leader or that person I have to have the conversation with? What does history suggest to me um, matters for them? And so you could say, look, before I go have my big moment, I'm going to purposefully take notes in three, four, ten meetings where I very carefully focus on, you know, when people talked 
in business or economic terms, boy, she lit up. When people talked in cultural or values terms, yeah, she wasn't that interested. Or when people talked about an opportunity for us, yeah, he wasn't that, he didn't seem to really care about opportunities. But when people said, this is a threat we have to address, whoa, then his ears perked up. Well, so some of what we do as preparation is sort of background work saying, you know, how does this person like to hear messages? How do they like to hear things framed? Where do they tend to respond better? Um, who would it be important for me to get on board to have come with me? So those are all the kinds of things uh, you can do that are sort of stage setters for the actual sort of moments themselves. So you really have to be paying attention. Uh, you do. Jim, what's your thoughts on behavioral profiles and helping to gain some insight on how you might want to approach a colleague? Say a little bit more about what you mean by sort of a behavioral profile. Oh, in this so for example, uh, like Myers-Briggs or, or DISC or Colors or whatnot, that will, will give some sort of general tendencies about how a person likes to hear messages and how they like to relate with others. So some people may be very relational and, and want to talk about you know, social lives and what happened on the weekend where other people are maybe more fact-based, other people are more direct and to the point. Yeah. I, I wonder if behavioral profiles can also provide some insight into how we may approach a courageous conversation with someone. Yeah, so I think they can. You know, my my sort of guess would be that this is this is a more actionable approach in the context of let's say a a group of teammates who work regularly together, where there would be a basis for us sort of doing some kind of behavioral assessment and then sharing with each other some results in the spirit of. Uh, you know, it helps me to hear you more if dot, 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 you know, that kind of um, team building context. building. the challenge, I think, right, in a lot of contexts is, you know, if I want to go in and talk to my boss or my boss's boss, like, OK, I'm, uh, I'm at the university. So if I want to go talk to the dean or the provost, I can't really um, send him or her uh, an email a week ahead saying, I'm looking forward to our meeting. Could you please fill out MBTI and send me <laughs> results? So uh, yeah. I guess one question would be. Like, how would I access that? And, <laughs> yeah, and I suppose, enough. I suppose what I'm recommending by saying be an observer yeah, is that I think you can discern that yourself by being a careful observer. Yeah, I guess. And I guess I would, I would, I would throw that back at you a bit too, to say, if you're that far removed from the person you're going to have the conversation with, it might be an educated guessing game anyways, is in terms of, you know, to what that person values or, or, or what they might be, uh, what they might be viewing. That's right. I mean, I think in that context, the homework, if you will, the pregame strategy there would be to say, um, what can I look at in terms of what they have written and said? Like, again, say I'm going to go to the provost or the president of the university there. Right. I, I can't figure out their style, per se. But what I can do is I can say, um, what have they made their top strategic priorities? If I look at their social media, you know, from their university accounts, what are they routinely promoting most proudly? What are they talking about as the university's most recent proud action? Uh, so there are other ways I think you can study people who you don't know as well interpersonally. And the idea there is to say, look, maybe they don't particularly care about my issue. I, I don't have any basis for thinking they care about my issue, but I'm very clear they care about issues one, two, three. And issue two, I can very clearly hook my thing to issue two. So part of, I think, sort of preparing or studying is to say, uh, rather than, a, than expecting them to care about your issue, 
how do you help them see your issue as one of their own key strategic priorities? Yeah, that's some really tangible advice uh, that, uh, that we can use. That's great. Uh, in, in the lead up, Jim, you also talk about this notion of social proof and making sure that you've got some evidence of that before you speak up. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah. So social proof, you know, more generally is this concept of um, having, if you will, numbers on your side, right? So um, if I want to come to you and say, you know, hey, boss, uh, I think, um, you know, we're struggling to have enough resources to accomplish our tasks well, or, um, you know, I think we're focusing too much on this market and really would be well served to focus on this or whatever. Or I think people are burned out in the pandemic and we should stop, you know, these meetings that aren't really that helpful. Uh, the idea of social proof is to say, if it's just me saying it, uh, you know, it's very easy to dismiss, well, yeah, the gym, that's your problem because you got young kids or yeah, the gym, that's just your point of view. Whereas social proof would say, the more I can marshal sort of the idea of like, no, um, this is a we, not a me, um, that's helpful. Now, the, the place that I think that gets a little tricky is on the one hand, you are more likely to get action if there is clearly a broader consensus that is speaking than a person. Where I see that actually cause a lot of trouble though in organizations is um, in the form of the conversation itself. So imagine I come to you, Jeff, and I say, hey, Jeff, you know, um, a bunch of us were talking and we're all feeling burnt out and we, you know, we just think you should change the way you're running the meeting. Actually, my experience suggests the first thing you're going to do is you're going to get derailed from the issue, which is there's a problem with the meeting. Please change it. And you're going to say, you were talking about me behind my back with who? who? Who else has got this problem? When I use the word we or we all, the tendency of the listener is to immediately go into sort of paranoid mode and want to know who's talking about that behind their back. Uh, so I, I actually think in conversations, it's usually more useful to say, if you're alone, say, I'd like to talk to you about something that's not working for me or that that's problematic. Um, I think social proof is best demonstrated to be persuasive if you can actually get others to come with you or to formally be a part of the ask. How do you know when to do it as a group and when to do it one-on-one? -on -one? Well, some of it, of course, is history, right? So if you have, if you have a history of saying, uh, yeah, you know, every time I talk to him or her, you know, she kind of makes it about me and blows it off and nothing happens. Or, yeah, this leader has a history of sort of divide and conquer. So they, they seem to actually like to talk to us one at a time so that we can never... Okay, well, then that would be sort of suggestive of um, we, we need a we approach here. Um, some leaders, I think, appreciate um, and or just sort of succumb to the pressure of, hey, many of us are here to talk to you about this. Frankly, other leaders feel ganged up on when it becomes a three on one or a five on one. Um, and, and I think, again, that's that's sort of a matter of sort of knowing and learning your history. What I will say is like when I would lean more toward potentially a general rule of go with a coalition is when you could easily be dismissed because you lack a certain type of credibility. So an example might be, I'm a white male. So it's, it, 
it's potentially quite easy for me to be dismissed if I go in and try to tell the dean, um, here's how I think our curriculum or anything else is really falling flat and problematic for my female colleagues and for our black students. Well, what the hell do I really know about is, is a relatively easy comeback um, to those topics. So on some issues um, to sort of partner or ally with the sort of affected groups, but, and, and to be clear, I'm not saying, in fact, I am saying clearly it is wrong to say only women should have to go fight for us because about women's issues. That's dead wrong. Uh, but I think most potent can be to have men and women speak together about the need for gender equity improvements, et cetera. So it could also be like if I'm relatively low level, but I am actually the one dealing with frontline customers, I may actually be quite in the know about um, what's wrong with our marketing, our pricing, whatever. But people might easily be able to dismiss me as you're the new guy or you're this low level guy. So there, if I can find some more seasoned people and or some folks a level or two up, it might be helpful. So I, I think coalition for its own sake is not often just as ganging up. But coalition, when the mix of people is potent, that's, I think, when you want to do it. Yeah, and that it's a tricky subject when you're talking about underrepresented groups because there's enough evidence that uh, that allyship is critical to, to moving the needle on behalf yeah. of underrepresented groups but if you just do that alone uh, and without somebody that's part of that underrepresented group might not be as effective i have to also ask you about office politics when the workplace culture is 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 all over the map uh, when we look at the the gallup research as an example i think Historically, I mean, I always appreciate when someone takes the time to have a courageous conversation with me, although it may be uncomfortable in the moment. I often grow from that and have greater respect for that person afterwards. And I've preferred it, at least to this point, that if a person has something they want to chat about, they come to me first, and then we can kind of go looking for evidence and data together to see what we should do about it and if they're alone. So doing it this other way, Jim, where people are now going around and talking to colleagues that could be really dangerous. So are, like, are there ways that you can do that so that you're not perceived as undermining authority or creating unnecessary politics? Yeah, it's an important question. And, and this might not hit directly on that, but, it, but it's, in the same, uh, it's in the same general sort of question area. There is this big issue of should we be open and honest? Should we put things on the table in public settings? Or, you know, should we actually sort of go with the rule of like, you know, praise in public, criticize in private? You know, if you go to where you started, Jeff, um, you know, you say, I like it if people come to me first and we can explore. Uh, I really think that's a mixed bag. Um, I know that sort of psychologically, our preference is I prefer not to be embarrassed or you know, called out in public. I worry though about, I worry though about um, a couple things. First of all, there are, there are plenty of contexts where like there's only one meeting in which this topic is going to be discussed. This decision is going to be announced. And frankly, this idea that we're going to do it later, it's too late. Like if I don't tell you right here, and I mean, this is the classic, like you're about to go on stage. I'm waiting to tell you after your onstage moment that your fly was open not helpful to you, right? 
Even if I tell you your fly's open in front of two people standing next to you backstage, still better than waiting, right? So sometimes the moment for learning is now. And, you know, to wait just means you're not going to have the moment. You're not going to learn. Uh, and second, I think from a cultural perspective, there is sort of an unintended consequence of this tell me privately first, which is that you're unintentionally, I think, reinforcing this norm of we don't truly have, especially with leaders, we don't truly have an open learning oriented culture. We can only tell each other the truth in private. We can only tell each other the truth behind a closed door. We can only tell the truth in one-on-one -on -one settings. And I don't think that defines actually the culture of a truly safe learning oriented place. So, you know, the question I, I, as a friendly push, what I would say is, Jeff, why do you want people to tell you in public? I mean, in private first. Yeah. Why I, not say, why not say, if you've got an issue with me in any context, please bring it up politely. If we need to take time to explore it, to get the data, we'll do that. We'll come back. But let's not have a, let's not have a, you know, backroom rule. Yeah. That's really insightful. And I, and I, and I appreciate you putting it back on me. And I'm, I'm in the moment, uh, as I reflect on it, I, I think part of it is for me personally is attached to this idea of not wanting to be left in the dark of not wanting to have blind spots or have been, you know, blissfully unaware that I thought we had this, this great organization with no problems and challenges and flaws. And then I find out, you know, a month later that the, you know, the group's been chatting about all of these deficiencies and these, these gaps that they see. And I was just un, unaware of it. So I think, I think that's part of it. And then, and if we were to drill that deeper, then I'm, that I'm sure there are things about, you know, fear of not being a good enough leader, fear of, uh, of, of not asking the right questions or building the right relationships. So there's a lot of, there's probably a lot of fear-based motivation behind that. Just thinking about that right now, Jim. So thank, thanks for the 20-second the therapy session. Yeah, I mean, but look, this is true for, this is true for so many of us. So it's not about you. I guess the, the, maybe the way to summarize that is to, to say, if people are talking like behind your back or, or you're out of the loop, you know, this, this, this very legitimate concern you're saying is, I think you need to ask yourself, is that a problem or is that a symptom of the problem? And I think what I'm arguing, I know what I'm arguing is it's not a problem. It's the symptom of the problem because what that tells you is for whatever reasons, they feel the need to talk about it behind your back, to strategize, to say it in the hallway before the meeting, but not in the meeting. In which case, the behavior in the hallway is not the problem. The behavior in the hallway is the symptom that somehow you haven't created the context where they're willing to tell you it in real time. Yeah, well, and, well and put. So just, you know, focus on that, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, well, well put. Let's talk a little bit about during the act now. So you've given us a lot of insight and examples of what we can do to, uh, to prepare and lead up to this courageous act. What are some essential aspects of performing the act or the conversation? Yeah. So again, you know, to kind of start and, and keep it brief, I'll go back to, in a sense, what I said about like, what is your, what is the target? What can you learn about um, what the target prefers? And, and this is really fundamentally in a nutshell, this is framing. Um, if one of the things, again, we have to challenge, you know, and, and listeners, I, I, I say, you know, ask yourself this, like when you're getting ready to have any conversation, 
peer or a subordinate about some performance issue, boss about something you want done, and you sort of prepare for it in your mind. I'm willing to guess that if we would just diagnose your preparation and I, I'd say, okay, tell me all your preparation. And you'd say, well, I'm going to put this data on the table and I'm going to make this analogy and I'm going to, right? That if we diagnosed that together, if we dissected that together, what we'd find is, and I'd say, well, why'd you go with that data? You'd say, well, I think that's really compelling. And I'd say, well, why'd you use that analogy? Well, don't you think that analogy is powerful? It really makes me emotionally, right? You would essentially tell me that all your preparation steps, your points resonated for you. <laughs> but the problem with that is like, if you were solely in charge of changing that other person's behavior or allocating the resources or whatever, you're not having the conversation anyway. The whole reason you're having the conversation is that you, you want somebody else to change their behavior or give you resource. And in that case, the data you find most compelling doesn't really matter, frankly. The analogy that's most emotionally resonant for you doesn't really matter. What matters is what is he or she going to find compelling, easy to hear, inspirational, motivational. And so the, the really the, the, the high level and the book, as you know, has lots of specifics, but the high level principle is um, it's not about what's compelling to you. It's about what's compelling to the other. Right. And until you get that in your head, you'll struggle. So what about after? So you've prepared, you've mustered up the courage and had the conversation or performed the courageous act. There's a piece that often gets missed, which is the, the post-action activity. What does that look like and why is it so important? Yeah, so let's break that down into sort of like you think it went well, you think it didn't go so well. Uh, I know very few people who will say like when they bring up an idea about stopping something and starting something new, um, even when they say like, yeah, we had a great conversation about it and I think they liked it at the top and they thanked me. Um, I know of very, very few cases where that actually ends with, that was so awesome. Right here and now I commit 10 full-time equivalent new employees and $4 million and I'll send out the email after this meeting saying we're not going to do that anymore. In my experience, that doesn't happen. That's not the way it goes, right? Best case, it seems to be a good conversation and they say, thank you. That's great to consider. So even when it goes well, you almost always actually need to follow up. You need to schedule those next meetings very quickly with the key players to say, so I think you were on board. That would imply we do this, this, and this. Can we talk about a timeline? Can you confirm your commitment to these resources? Can you? So really taking those next steps because big things don't get changed. And frankly, even little things, like if you have a, uh, conflict in work styles between you and a coworker, and you have a conversation and, and it's gone well, but does that really mean the coworker has agreed? Yeah. For next week's deadline, I will indeed get it to you a little bit, uh, uh, two days earlier, or I will indeed, you know, nail that down. And then in the case where you, you know, again, let's say you're saying, let's, let's move a little bit away from this and toward this. There's almost always somebody in the room who stands or feels they stand to lose the most by moving away from something or agreeing that something's not working very well. And again, if you're paying attention, you'll notice in the meeting that you're getting sort of growl, people are tuning out. Um, frankly, often you'll hear the snarky negative comment. Um, the easiest thing to do is to ignore that and be like, well, it seemed to go okay, so let's keep pushing forward. Um, the more courageous thing to do is actually be willing to go do another hard act and to say, hey, 
you know, I think most people were on board, but I saw Jeff snarling at me and he said that kind of smart assy thing. I'm going to go to Jeff's office after this meeting ends. I'm going to say, Hey, can we talk? You seemed upset or you seemed angry. And I know that's often the very last thing we want to do is go do like one more hard conversation, but that makes a huge difference as to whether in the end you might say, yeah, this is what was bothering me. And this is, and, and I might be able to bring you along or apologize, or you just may become a sort of a permanent blocker. There's another concept in your book, Jim, that, I have to admit, causes me a lot of concern. And, and it was what the research tells us about delaying a courageous conversation or a courageous act. And the longer we do it, the harder it is to break that cycle. Can you talk about what that is and, and uh, how that sort of impacts our ability to be courageous? Yeah, let me, let me put that in. Uh, let me put that in, let's say, kind of a, a, a broader bucket um, of what I'll call what I'll call rationalizations. So we, in a very simple way of thinking about this, humans have two really important core motives. Uh, on the one hand, if we're honest, you know, as a species, we're self-interested, self-protected, like we want things to go well for us and our closest loved ones. I mean, that's a very like evolutionarily acceptable fact. Um, on the other hand, we also actually very much want to um, feel like we are morally good, decent people. So we sort of want what we want and we want to feel okay about it. Uh, the reality is life presents us a lot of um, opportunities to uh, where we could do one, but not the other, right? We, we could get what we want, but not while feeling so good about ourselves. And so the brain has evolved tons of different mechanisms, biases, rationalizations that allow us to do what we want and still feel good about ourselves. Uh, it's just a sad fact of the way the brain works. So, you know, uh, well, now's not the right time. I'll do it later is a very common rationalization. So what I'll do it later allows me to feel is I'm a good person because I know this is important to do and I'm going to do it later. So I can still feel good about myself. But, oh, I don't really want to do it now. It feels scary and not in my self-interest. So I feel good about that, too. So there's a, there's a logical, if you will, reason why we tell ourselves tons of rational. You know, we use tons of rationalizations. It's not that big a deal. Everybody does it. Um, you know, she told me to. We use lots of rationalizations, and that's the reason, right? We want to feel good about ourselves while being a little schmucky. Um, the real thing, if, if we care about this, we have to ask ourselves is um, how often do we really, I can't give you precise data, but I will tell you that my own estimate of when people say like, why didn't I confront that inappropriate remark? Or why didn't I speak back when there was a flat out factual mistake making or whatever? Uh, the percentage of time when people say, well, I'm gonna have, a, I'm gonna schedule a meeting later. I'm gonna tell them later the percentage of time that actually happens, I would estimate is 5% or less. Like, I, I don't buy that. I think, it's an, I think it's a rationalization, not an accurate statement. Jim, how does a leader tell if their organization has an absence of courage and some things they can do to start inviting more of it? Uh, well, some of the things we've talked about already, I think would, you know, would, would be indicators. I mean, 
if you got a hell of a lot more vibrant conversation in the hallway before the meetings than in the meetings, you've probably got a problem. Uh, I would say, frankly, as a leader, one one mistake, and you know, and I would encourage people to think about this. Uh, if you if you witness silence on any issue that you if you're paying attention, you have reason to know there should be quite a varied set of opinions about and some quite passionate on all sides. But you lead a meeting in which suddenly nobody says anything, um, that it's a mistake to think silence reflects agreement. Um, I think great leaders in general, in the discussion of anything at all tricky, would assume silence reflects a problem, um, not that people are on board. So look for signs of silence. Um, look for signs that, uh, you know, lots of organizations talk about their pre-meeting meeting culture. Right. So we get together once or twice or three times to talk about the meeting before the meeting. Why the hell are you doing that if it's safe? Um, so I think there's I, I think the other thing is overcompliance. Um, if you see that sort of there's just sort of a culture of going along. If you look upward and you say, like, what's the defining feature of people on the senior team or of getting promoted? It seems to be yes, men or women, people that go along. You probably have a courage problem. Um, anything that's a signal that people have points of view, but they're not airing them publicly is generally a, a, an indicator you have a courage problem. You've alluded to this notion that having the tools is not enough. And I'm imagining where all of us have stood now um, and many, many times where we're somewhat prepared to have a conversation, or at least we know we should, or we want to have a conversation, but we still don't do it. What are some strategies that you have seen work to help people overcome that fear gap that, and, and become a little bit more courageous, start to use your tools more consistently? Yeah, so again, I'll try to be brief, but I really think there's sort of two different sort of pillars of strategies. Um, one is to actually begin, and this is based on, you know, concepts from exposure therapy, cognitive behavioral theory, the most established theories, frankly, in psychology, clinical psychology. And those all point to the same thing, which is they say, this is also true for, by the way, how do you become a better athlete? Uh, how do you learn to play an instrument? Those all say the same thing is the way you get better um, is slow, steady exposure, slow, steady, safe exposures. Um, you repeatedly say, What's a, not the scariest thing I can think of, uh, but a, a less scary, but yet still difficult for me thing I can think of that I could take a single first relatively safe step. Um, and you take that step and then you process it and you learn from it and you maybe adopt a new strategy and then you try again. You know, again, um, not to be ridiculous, but to, to make the point about the concept, if you think about exposure therapy, like, oh, I'm terrified of snakes. Well, there's no way. So exposure therapy doesn't say, um, well, hey, you know, uh, get it together. Um, come into my office and pick up this cobra right away. Um, no, exposure therapy, like to get over snake fear, would literally say, I'm telling you that there's a snake in my office in a cage. I'm going to first ask you to just stand in the hall with the door open for 10 seconds. And the next time you're going to stand there for 15 seconds. And then the next time maybe you're going to come to the doorway itself, right? It's a very, very slow process of saying, I could experience that fear, but I actually realized rationally it wasn't threatening to me. 
and I've learned some strategies for navigating this. So one big pillar is to say, how can I slowly but surely build some skills? Those could be communication skills, um, self-talk skills. It could be how to keep myself calmer physiologically. The other pillar is to say, look, the reason this is so scary for me is that I don't feel like I have enough other options. In other words, I'm afraid at work because I have let myself lose all job mobility. So if I lose this job, I'm totally screwed. Or the reason I'm so afraid at work and keep my mouth shut is um, every time they give me a thousand dollar raise, I spend 2000. So I got no money in the bank whatsoever. Well, then you got to change that. Or look, the reason I can't imagine rocking the boat with friends or colleagues at work is all my social activities, all my best friends are also at work. Well, it's going to be hard to get over that if you don't make friendships and hobbies outside of work. So they're really the two buckets of strategies. One are how do you become more skillful one slow step at a time? But the other one is how do you detach the parts of your identity or fear that get in the way at work? And the way you do that is you take steps outside of work. Yeah, I, I like those. I like how you frame those. There were, there were a couple other things, Jim, that you mentioned in your book that really resonated with me too. And it was thinking about your values. I mean, so first of all, defining what your values are, and it can be easier to be courageous if you stay in alignment with your values and you think about not being courageous, being out of alignment. So that can help. And even you talk a little bit about uh, the group that you're going to help or the difference that you might help create in the world, on your team. And and just even if it's just a small difference um, in 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 the community that you reside in. So those things can be helpful too. And uh, Jim, I wondered if we could close off with this question before we go to three and 30. And it's, what do we stand to gain personally from becoming more courageous? Yeah, so I, let me say maybe three kinds of things. So the first thing I think you stand to gain is um, sort of a level of self-respect, of, of feeling authentic, of feeling, you know, you you stood for what it is you believe in. Um, I think... Patrick Lencioni got it right. He talked about, you know, he was talking about organizations, but I I would say the same is true for us as people. Uh, We all say we've got these core values like integrity and I want to live my, you know, integrity, honesty, kindness, whatever. Um, But he said, if I ask you, so, okay, so tell me the last time you sort of had a consequence, you suffered pain standing for your integrity, your honesty, your kindness, and you can't come up with anything then it's not a core value. It's just an aspirational value. Uh, and I think that that's also so true for us as people. Uh, what do you gain by acting courageously, even if you s- undertake some pain? Um, you gain a sense that I actually am who I say I am. I actually stand for what I say I believe in. Um, I'm authentic to myself. I'm real. That's one. Um, two, uh, I mean... Again, hopefully the reason you want to speak up or, or take bold actions most of the time is that you actually stand a chance to make things better for you and others. You have a chance to make your work environment healthier, a place where people are more engaged, doing more interesting work, where um, they're sharing in the fruits of their labor more. Uh, you're allowing the organization to adapt and grow and thrive and, and do you know achieve its mission. So Also, hopefully what you achieve some of the time is you make things better. Um, And then last, I guess I would say, um, and this is kind of a time horizon issue. Uh, 
we tend to be really focused on the here and now, like, Ooh, what if this goes bad? Um, and that often is why we don't act. But we know from the regret literature that when people look back over longer periods of time, what they regret are actually not things they did that didn't go very well. What they regret are inactions, things that they say I should have done and didn't. So one thing you gain personally is um, a life that isn't going to be filled with regret. Uh, even whistleblowers, for example, who really did get their butts kicked, um, even they tend almost unanimously to not have regret. They still say, I'm glad I did it. I know it was the right thing. I would make the choice again. Um, so one thing you gain is, is you don't end up with a life of regret. And I think John, John Izzo wrote a book about sort of like the wishes of the dying or some such thing. And he says it well. He says, um, you know, we're all going to die at some point in time. And as we get older, we're all going to probably be tired. The question is whether you're going to be a good tired or a bad tired. Um, and what he meant by good tired is what I think I'm saying, which is, um, you know, fight the fight, live the life you, you feel called to live. And even when you get some bumps along the road, you, you'll be okay. You'll be okay with where you, you land at the end. I love that. Uh, uh, yeah, I love that. Tom Peters talks a lot about the difference between resume uh, virtues and eulogy virtues. And uh, yeah. it, it reminds me a lot of that, Jim. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, and I can speak from personal experience. I had a courageous conversation this week and I've been sitting on it for about two weeks and your book, it was interesting timing to go through that. Cause I was, I was of course had finished your book and, and I used some of the tips in the book to have the conversation. When I finally had the discussion, I felt liberated. I felt more genuine. I felt authentic. I felt like I had grown and I felt like hopefully I've maybe in a small way established a stronger relationship with the person I was, I was having a conversation with too. So thank you for your help on that personally. So let's move into the three and 30 now, Jim. So what are three simple tips that the audience can do to start becoming more courageous in the next 30 days? Okay. So the first thing I would recommend is that you go um, to workplace CAI, all one word, workplacecai.com and take the workplace courage X index. This is an index I created uh, of 35 different behaviors in organizations that thousands of people have said can require courage and not happen very frequently. The reason I would suggest you do that to get started is um, it will help you think about the types of behaviors that if you're honest, um, geez, these are hard for me and I'd like to do more frequently. So these will ground you away from just these big sort of martyrdom acts into specifics that you would care about. Um, second, when you, you've now got four, six, eight behaviors where you say like, yeah, that's really hard for me and I don't do it enough, um, identify one specific reason you aren't doing some of those things. Write it down. I'm not doing it because I don't have the right skill. I'm not doing it because I start to shake. <laughs> I'm not doing it for a reason X, Y, Z, because that will help you figure out what are the particular tools or practices you need to begin doing. And then three, on my website, you can find uh, a personal courage ladder exercise. This just literally helps you arrange from sort of, you know, most potentially doable, scare, a little scary, but doable up to sort of that biggest, scariest act. So in a level of difficulty ladder, and then it walks you through building a very specific action goal, right? So you don't just pick the lower rung and say like, be more honest with my colleagues. You then translate that to, I will schedule a meeting to talk with Ted next week, Wednesday at three. Um, so, you know, 
take the index to sort of identify your challenging areas, figure out why concretely those are tough for you, and then build a courage ladder um, and take a first step. Jim, those are excellent tips. There's so much more we could have talked about today that we didn't have a chance to get to. And I just want to thank you on behalf of uh, our whole team and our whole community of leaders for joining us today and for the wonderful research that you're doing. I mean, this, this work is, is really making an impact. And, uh, and, and this is something that all of us would be, uh, would be wise to pay attention to, whether you're a leader or not. So, Jim, thank you for your efforts and, and thank you for your time today. Of course, it's been great. And I, I look forward to, uh, to the listeners uh, and everybody ha that has a chance to read Jim's book on becoming a little bit more courageous, one step at a time on your own courage ladder. And uh, through those efforts, hopefully we can all agree in the pursuit of becoming good tired. So thank you so much, Jim. And to stay connected to us, you can find us on our, all of our social channels. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, of course. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube library where you can find this episode Send it to all your colleagues if you're trying to become more courageous as a company and all of our previous episodes as well. Also available wherever your favorite podcasts are located. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like what you saw, don't forget to share episode links with your friends and colleagues. And if you're ready to take the next step and you're part of a leadership team that you just know has untapped potential, don't wait another moment. Go to unleashresults.com and subscribe to our newsletter. We'll take care of the rest.